We got two Joshes next door in the nursery, filling in for their wives who were signed up to be in the nursery. Well, that was pretty good. I don't know how Aaron got out of it, but he did all right, though. How many of you grew up with the same delight that I did? And maybe I hope you saw it as the delight. Every morning when you would show up at school, one of the first things you would do is you should put a flag up here. You'd go, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Is that a fond memory for us? It's one of the things you miss after you graduate. It's not getting up every day and saluting the flag. How about the national anthem? Great song. They still play at all the sporting events. Especially NASCAR. NASCAR is big, I hear, on the national anthem. And uh, I sing the national anthem really well. Do you? It's a tough range. It's hard to, to get. But the reason I sing it so well is because I sing it as loud as I can. You know, when everybody else singing, I never heard. And you could, you could just have a good time. Somebody will cover you. And they usually have somebody on the mic that's doing a very good job of it. And, uh, but I'm concerned, and I've had this concern for some years, that maybe there's a waning, there's a, a lack of exposure for our young people. I'm not sure that the national anthem's on the top ten list for young people. Yet every time for me, when we sing it, or even if it's at a sporting event, I get a little teary-eyed. I'm really a patriotic kind of guy. I love my country. And I love those things that we do that reinforce our uh, attention and our loyalty and our patriotism in our country. Um, Even though the national anthem may not be sung as often as I might like or you might like, I don't think it's ever waned or become less in its value as a national anthem, has it? It's still valuable. And what's my point here? The simplest repetitive act of devotion to a cause will convey or conduct a person, a a people group, or even an entire nation toward a heart and a mindset of continuance and faithfulness to that cause. You know, there are mottos. How about Semper Fi? Any, any of you guys here? Semper Fi. You know, that's the Marines. Small mottos. Songs. Pledges. There are those things that remind us of our cause. There are those things that remind us of what it is we believe in. And they cause us to stand up a little taller. Things that we believe in. Let me show you how this works. Last week you may have noticed and I said, let me see if I can run this into the end zone. There was no response to that. It was a bad line. Out of season. I said, oh, let me see if I can hit a home run with this. It didn't much happen then. When I said, let's see if I can go fast and turn left, every guy in the room perked up like about an inch. I saw it. It was just rise. They thought, we're going NASCAR. 
And uh, it was just amazing to me that those things that get our attention cause us to stand up. And we just bring a few simple points, simple daily acts of devotion to a cause are important. I'm thinking that in the same way, each of our homes must be or become a training center where simple and repetitive acts of devotions are conducted every day. Simple things. Not for a political or even a national cause, but for the cause of Christ and his kingdom. I'm using the pledge, I'm using the the national anthem as an illustration this morning. I'm not trying to move us towards a loyalty to the nation. I believe a lot of us have that, and that's good. I'm just saying that in the same way, those simple things that we do every day, they're not dramatic, they're not overpronounced, they're just the same, will rivet us to the cause of Christ and his kingdom. And they should be there. They should be happening in our homes. You know, our homes are like a uh, a platform or a waiting area at the airport. Uh, I see more like a platform at a train station. There, Our home is that place where everybody in the home is going to launch out today into the world. We're going to catch the train of life and we're going to move into the flow of what's out there in the world. The home is that platform that we step off of when we go into the world. And every member of our home is going to walk into the world's situation every day, and our faith is going to be pressed. Our stability is going to be tested. The sincerity of what we believe is going to, be, is going to have pressure applied to it. Do you feel that when you go out? Even in the simplest ways. You're standing in a group of people, and somebody swears, and something just goes into your spirit and says, that's not right. And yet you might check yourself and say, oh, I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to offend people. They'll just let them offend me. And our, 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 in, even in the simplest moment, our faith is kind of pressed. What is our response going to be? Or if we hear the name of Jesus being defamed, not just used as a swear word, as people do, but actually defamed, will we, we're pressed. Are we going to stand up and say something about that? I remember a man that I, I listened to one time. It was Don Loney. He was a great speaker. He used to go to all the high schools in the nation, moved around a lot. Some of you might even know him. But uh, he was expressing how that he was in a, in a huge meeting, and the speaker in front of these, this thousand people kept using the name Jesus just irrelevantly. This and Jesus that and Jesus. And finally, some guy back in the second third of the building stood up on his chair in the middle of this guy's speech and said, Sir, leave Christ out of it. And then he sat down. Don Loney said that when that meeting ended, the guy that had stood on his chair had a bigger line standing in front of him than the speaker did. What does that tell us? It tells us that we have some underpinnings that are there every day that gird us and to the point that when our faith is pressured, we will rise to the occasion. Not just to be open or loud or maybe even offensive. I'm just saying it causes us to stand up. I think about singing the national anthem, and I I do like to sing it. I'm not going to jump into it here, but how about this old anthem? Onward. 
Christian soldiers marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. There's an anthem that rises in our heart that says this is what we believe. The cross is important. And it is the emblem that divides all of history, isn't it? And you've got the B.C. thing and you've got the A.D. thing and standing right in the middle of it is the cross. I'm going to read something to you at risk of reading. Reading is not always great, but I know there are those that will listen online on CD that may not have this, although I have lots of copies of this for you to go with you. I just want to guarantee that as I begin reading, some of you are not going to like this. Would you please raise your hands? Oh, we don't know who you are yet. It's going to offend some, and some of you are going to love it. So that's sort of a political move, isn't it? You just never know which side of the line people are going to be on. Maybe we'll all like it. It's a maybe. This is a brochure written by a friend of mine named Eugene Klingman, who is the uh, executive director of the International Church Council. They're highly concerned with right doctrine all around the world. They collaborate with people all over the world to write straightforward biblical interpretations on every topic that they can. And they're trying to bring the church to a place where we can agree on these topics all over the world. It's called Government Schools, Parents, and Kids. How will we answer the Lord and what will he say? As Christian parents, the care of our children is central to the blessing and preservation of Christ's church. Perhaps the most powerful influence infiltrating the church today and for the past several generations can be found in this, that approximately 85% of Christian children attend the government schools. Of these 85% who attend government schools, more than 80% drop out of church shortly after graduating high school. We're about a month away from graduation here. It is clear that the government school system is a very effective, is very effective in killing the faith of Christian children. Because we parents will be held responsible for how we raise our children and for the influence we allow to shape their lives, we need to carefully consider what we are doing. Our children do not belong to us. They are stewardship from God. Our God has clearly instructed Christian parents to bring them up in the fear that is the training and the admonition of the Lord, Ephesians 6.4. What will we say to the Lord when he calls us to account? Consider this possible conversation between a parent and God. I know some of you already set up and figured out which side of this you're on. Probably saying, oh, here it comes, the homeschool thing, or whatever it is you might say. And I'm just trying to drive a point here, okay? God, did you bring your children up in the fear and admonition of the Lord? And with a feeling of accomplishment, the parent might answer, well, yes, Lord, they went to Sunday school and attended church Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, a total of six hours a week. I imagine the conversation might continue like this. God. Well, how much time were they taught by the pagan, unbelieving government school system? And Eugene uses a definition here uh, from Webster's Dictionary 1828 of what a pagan is. Those who refuse to receive Christianity. Simple enough. 
How much time were they taught by the pagan, unbelieving government school system? Well, well, Lord, Monday through Friday it was six or seven hours each day, and sometimes on Saturday they attended special government school events and games and activities. Uh, let's see, that's uh, probably a total of not less than 30 hours a week. God, but, but I asked you to train your children diligently in Christian living and worldview from the time you get up in the morning until the time you go to bed, when you sit in your house and when you travel. By the way, when your children traveled on the school bus, were they shown a godly example and were they learning the Christian worldview or were they learning the way of the pagans? You do remember that I told you not to learn the ways of unbelievers, don't you? From morning to sunset, your children are to be taught to love God with all their hearts. They should be instructed in Christian truth and true knowledge of the universe that I created, including science, history, the arts, socialization, and even mathematics. They can only learn true knowledge if I and my son Jesus Christ are at the center of that knowledge. You do realize that science is not real science unless I, the creator of all things, am placed at the center and as the foundation, don't you? You do realize that history isn't real history unless it's studied with this principle in mind that I, God, am sovereign over history. Nations rise and fall based on how they respond to me and my son Jesus Christ. Unless history is taught within the context of the fact that I have an overall plan for history and that not even a bird falls to the ground apart from me, it's not true history, but only many facts disjoined from reality. Were your children taught history with me, the Lord over history, in the very forefront of the instruction they received? And socialization, I hear there's a lot of concern about socialization these days. Were they taught how to conduct themselves as Christians during those 30 hours a week? Were they being taught and also given living examples of how to live in purity? Or were they taught the pluralistic view that purity is okay, but it's only one of many possible options? Did your children become well-informed about the ways of the unbelievers? Or were they, quote, babes when it comes to evil? Yes, socialization is important to my kingdom. Were the boys and young men taught and admonished to look with purity upon the girls and young ladies to treat them respectively as sisters? Were the girls encouraged to dress in a modest manner so as to not encourage less than the young men? You know, young men naturally struggle with such challenges and don't need any help from scantily dressed girls. Yes, socialization is important. Were they socialized in godliness? Or did they learn to pattern themselves after the pagans, those who refused to receive Christianity? Parent. Well, yes, Lord, our kids do look and act a bit like the average public school kid, but we knew there might be some risks, but we remembered your great commission and we wanted our kids to witness to their friends. God. Did I give the Great Commission to children? Don't you realize there's a great battle going on in the world? Well, yes, Lord, we send our little soldiers out to the battle every weekday. After all, you don't want us to keep them sheltered, do you? God, I wanted your children to go to war, but I wanted them to be trained and matured for warfare first. Let's think together for a moment. Would, would you place guns in the hands of the grade school sons and daughters and send them to the front lines in a war against grown men? I know you wouldn't. But isn't that what you've done with my children whom you sent into these government schools? Isn't it apparent that the government schools are a major weapon in the war against me and my kingdom? You sent them right into the enemy's training camp. And statistically, 
the larger percentage of Christian kids who go to the government school training camps end up denying their Christian faith. You wouldn't send children to the front lines in a war, but you sent them into the middle of a more crucial war. In this war, the enemy has your child in the sights of his gun. Let's think further. If a child is able to stand against uh, is a child able to stand against adult teachers with experience of years, the training of college, accumulated knowledge, and a place of credibility and authority that often rivals or exceeds the parents? Does a child have the ability to discern when a false premise is made and false conclusions drawn? Does the child have the ability to counter philosophic arguments that rule me, God, out of my universe and history and science, etc.? Teachers of my children whom you have on loan from me, should train my children to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ, my Son. I want your children to be trained so they eventually can counter false ideas. But if most of what's in their heads denies or ignores me, they're not being trained for me and my kingdom, but for their enemy and mine. But Lord, our school is different. We had nine Christian teachers and our principal was Christian too. Hmm. Did those nine Christian teachers and Christian principal place Christ at the center of all they taught? Or did their teachings suggest that my Christ and his kingdom are one of many possibilities? Did they essentially follow the government-imposed curriculum that either ignores my existence or actively denies me? I know that in America, teachers are required by law and by the contract they sign not to teach about me, my Christ, and my kingdom. Did they obey those laws and fulfill the covenant contract they signed? But Lord, now this is a little stretch here and this will hurt. But Lord, I had to work, so I needed the federal babysitter. I mean the government school. I had no options. When it comes time for you to give account to the Lord for the stewardship of your children, how will the conversation go? And I will finish. You can finish that later. Now, this isn't necessarily a commercial for homeschooling versus government schooling. I hope it's an encouragement. And I'm very much pro-homeschooling. I'm not anti-school. I know the arguments, both sides. Salt and light, can't leave the kingdom out of the schools, etc., etc. But let me throw a few uh, things up on the wall here. Let Ed help me. And I apologize, I don't like to look this way and read off the screen. I'm going to skip through. This is an older message that I ran a PowerPoint for, but I wanted you to be able to see some statistics in here. Um, and, and I'm going to probably jump across a couple of things, and I'll try and help you find them. But let's just move. We are talking about building bridges at the time. and uh, Let's just skip this and go right to that graph that talks about the, uh, the, the age brackets, if we can. Yeah. Builders. How many builders do we have? Born between 1927 and 45. Got a few? Uh-huh. And then what's the next group there? Boomers. Sorry, I'm in your way. Uh, born 46 to 64. <gasps> Come on. <laughs> and uh, the next group is the Busters, born 65 to 83. Where's the Busters? Okay, good, good. Some here. And, and, the, and the Bridgers. We call them the Bridgers. Born 84 or later. Where's the Bridgers? All right. There you are. It says, it's hard to read, it says, also known as millennials and mosaics. These are just the breakdowns of age groups, okay? So everybody knows where they live. But our focus is on this bridger group, 
Okay, let's go ahead. Dramatic pause. Oh, we can skip the story if you can. Yeah. Uh, I don't think we need that one either. Yeah. Okay, let's see what we got. Here's where we're going to go. Thank you. One third of all unchurched homes in America have children under 18. That's a lot. Okay. That means there's 25 to 30 million pre-saved youth in the United States that are waiting for somebody to help them know Jesus. That's a lot of kids. And I know some of you moms feel like half of them live at your house. Let's Let's continue. This is what I want you to see. The probability of salvation in the different age groups. From 5 to 13, the probability of a child getting saved is 32%. Imagine, if you will, 100 kids, you present them the gospel, 32 of them will accept Jesus in that age bracket. When you go to 14 to 18, only 4 of the 100 are probable accepting of Jesus. And then when you go 19 and older, 6%. Let me ask you a question. Uh, Why do you think it is we don't spend more of our effort as a body, as a church, the church in general across America, targeting the 5 to 13-year-olds? Let's interact a little bit. Give me a couple ideas. Why do you think the church in general doesn't target the young people well enough? Any ideas? You won't like it. I, I didn't say I'd have to like it. As long as you're not... Within a church, they're not the ones that contribute. They're not the ones that contribute. That's probably one of the biggest issues. Is we, we have to cater to all of you that donate so that we have enough funds to do what we can do with kids. That's a big piece of it. What's another piece? Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. I mean, yeah. first of all, introduce it to them. Yeah. And you and I, one other thing I'll say, and I'll say another word to this whole thing, <laughs> otherwise you'll get the door because I agree with you 100%. Yeah. You and I have talked about this several times. Okay. You don't introduce it to them from the family side because you know, my dad, I don't want to go to church. I'm playing baseball. Yeah, yeah, right. The other side is in the schools, they're trying to erase history. Exactly. And they're doing that across the board. Take it off the government buildings. Right. Don't right. mention God. Even though it's important to our history. I taught history for 25, 30 years. Sorry, I think we have one more we can do here. Acceptance of Jesus. Nearly half of all Americans who accept Christ as their Savior do, do, for, do so before reaching 13 years old. Okay. Two out of three born-again Christians accept Jesus Christ as their Savior before their 18th birthday. And one out of eight made their profession of faith while 18 to 21. That comes from 2004. The statistics are very similar still these five years later. Uh, I just don't want to have to rebuild it. How about acceptance of the Bible? It's a well-documented fact that the percentage of Bible-believing Christians has been steadily decreasing from generation to generation. While 35% of baby boomers, that's the me, hold to the core biblical beliefs, that number drops to only 4% of bridgers, those who are under 21. Now, this is a big sentence. Think about what our society looks like now with the boomers mostly in charge, where 35% of us have a biblical foundation, and now we're going to take what we're running now, which isn't that great, is it? 
Our culture is kind of running downhill. We've got lots of problems. And we're going to hand it to a group where only 4% have any foundation in the Scripture. And what Tom was saying is true. It's, there, there's a, a, a mad rush to erase God from culture. And if you were with us through the Truth Project series, you remember some of those segments uh, where it was clearly shown to us that this was the effort to take you know, the God circle and put a big X through it and get God out and put ourselves up in his spot and we want to run everything. But it's his sphere of leadership that's, that's a, the attempt is trying to erase. It's been done before. This is history. As Tom was saying, you know, they've had the whole countries that tried to eliminate the Bible from their country and burn them all. Didn't work. Couldn't do it. God's not going to be like that. What else? Bible-based believers, builders, boomers, busters, bridgers, and you can just run the stats up there. That's a little scary. What does it mean, right? The builders. 65 out of every 100 had a Bible background or foundation. And look at it. Decreasing in percentage. Okay? Is there anything after that, Ed? On there, and for those of you who are listening online or on a CD, sorry you can't see the pictures. I think that's about it, right? Uh, Pass that one, I think. Yeah. This is the message. Even today. Deuteronomy 6. Uh, 1 and 9. Let me read this to you. Right from the Bible. This is the commandment, and these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you, you and your son and your grandson, all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. Therefore hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. That's the key. It has to be in your heart first. Parents, moms, dads, leaders of homes, it has to be in your heart first. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house or when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. Bind them as a sign on your hand, and they'll be as frontlets between your eyes. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, to give you large and beautiful cities which you did not build, houses full of good things which you didn't fill, hewn out wells which you didn't dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant. When you have eaten and are full, then beware, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Teach them to your children. Press them into their lives. This impressing into your children is like taking the cookie cutter of God and stamping his image into them. Pressing his image into them. What's after this? Psalm 78, 1 to 8. Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he's done. 
For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, the children who would be born, that they may arise and declare them to their children, that they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And may not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not set its heart aright, whose spirit was not faithful to God. How do we, how do we keep in tow those things that are so important to us in our homes? Like the common, simple, daily acts of devotion. What's next? This one we all know, probably. Proverbs 26, raise up a child, train up a child in the way they should go. When they're old, they won't depart from it. Is there anything else? I like 2 Timothy 3.16. It's actually a few verses there where Timothy is being written to by Paul the Apostle. And he says, part of the reason that he chose Timothy, part of the reason that he became a leader in the church, in the early church, was because... As Paul said to him, you've known the scriptures. You've known the Holy Scriptures since you were a child. The faith was in your grandmother and in your mother, and now it's in you. And I like that passage, especially here on Mother's Day, because it was, says it was in your grandmother and it was in your mother. Moms, you are still the hand that rocks the cradle and that rules the world. You're the one that's fashioning life into those young people on a regular and consistent basis. And I contend that the daily, small, consistent habits of devotion to God will generally suffice in keeping a people walking with Christ. You know, we were talking about the pledge and the anthem for America, and I think that you can have a child that every day says, I pledge allegiance to the flag. And you can have a president, I pledge allegiance to the flag. They have very, very different levels of maturity, responsibility, and commitment to that pledge, don't they? We don't expect a child to have the same level as the president. I'm just pausing so that I don't go political. (laughs) And so it is with each of us and the members of our families. We're going to have differing levels of maturity and followership in Christ. But we still share the same simple foundations. Daily, consistent, little pledges. Memorizing scripture. Prayer time and devotion. Worship of God in the home. Those simple primary efforts that we keep constant in our life all the way to the grave. You know, it's been said that we we live the way we die. I mean, excuse me, we die the way we live. Pardon me, I got it backwards. That we generally die the way we lived. I remember the story on a, on a plane crash in Tenerife. Some of you may have heard it, but this plane was going down and there was a Christian sitting next to a non-believer and this thing was smoking down and, and uh, the Christian was praying and thanking Jesus for his safety and the guy next to him was just swearing up a storm and mad as a hornet and cursing God and cursing life. And, and uh, the guy that was praying actually lived to tell the story. He said it impressed on him just the fact that the way we live is how we generally die. This guy had lived a life, and he proved it on the way down. He said, and I lived a life, and I was proving mine on the way down. It isn't the moment of change that we're looking for in that radical moment of pressure. It's that simple, daily, consistent foundation 
of devotion to God that holds us in the toughest times. Family altars. If you're going to have a family altar at your house, which I recommend, daily devotions as a family group, and, and moms are going, oh my gosh, another thing to do? <laughs> Daily, devotion, discipline, and delight. Larry Lees used to say that we talk about prayer. It starts, we want to do prayer. We, it starts as a desire. I want to pray more. And then when we begin to practice praying, it becomes a discipline issue. I'm going to consistently do it. I don't always feel like it, but I'm just going to do it. I'm going to be consistent. I'm going to discipline my life. Remember the story of the guy that used to fall asleep every time he would pray? He, he was so mad at himself. So what did he do? He, he decided he was going to pray standing on the edge of the bathtub. He said, I'm not going to fall asleep here. He just disciplined his body to stand on the edge of the tub and pray. Because he got tired of falling asleep. Well, that's the hard part, isn't it? I have a desire, but I have to find the discipline. And after I get the discipline, then comes the delight of the process. And the same thing happens in our home family altars. So not all of us have children at home. Not all of us. I know I'm talking to some singles here and grandparents that are, you know, got the empty nest. It's been, they've been gone for a while. But still, the consistency of our life must be there. And our consistency as a church family must be there in being a model and an example to the young families around us that this is how life happens for believers. And when they come to us and say, well, do you still do devotions? Do you still have a family altar? Well, no, my family's gone. But I still have an altar. I still have a place that I go and I meet with God. I still have a consistency in my, in my daily time with Him. And that's what keeps me strong. That's what keeps me going. And I learned it with my kids. We must be examples. Like Paul said. You know, follow me as I follow Christ. If you've seen it in me, if you've heard me say it, if you've watched me do it, then you do it too and you'll be great. You'll be fine, Paul said. How do you establish a family of devotion? Let me give you four simple things that maybe you can remember. Jot them down. Family devotions. Number one, you start with thanksgiving and praise. That's the point of when you're offering yourself to God. A thankful heart. An attitude of gratitude. God, I'm thanking you for these things. I'm thanking you for my life. I'm thanking you for your presence in our home. And, and uh, this is where I'm going to offer myself to you. Psalm 100 verse 4 says, Enter his gates with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving opens into the presence of God. When you're there, you're going to say, This is me, God. Romans 12, 2. I'm going to offer my body as a living sacrifice to you. This is me. First thing, thanksgiving and praise. Second comes confession and cleansing. Confession and cleansing is an offering of the heart. Not just the body, not just the, the person, but it's an offering of your heart. Psalm 139, at the end of that great chapter about God knowing us and how he formed us in the womb and had a plan for our lives, at the end it says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Challenge me, God. Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10 says that 
The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Verse 10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. God can search the heart. God can know what's going on inside of us. Sometimes when we don't even understand it, he can show it to us, right? He's further ahead of it than we are. But when we offer our confession to God and ask for cleansing, we're saying, Lord, I know my heart. It can be very evil. So search me. I confess to you, I'm a sinner and I need your help. It was the psalmist David in Psalm 19, I think it was verse 12, he said that, how can I know the, how can I understand my errors? I have so many errors, (laughs) so many faults, so many failures. God, would you even cleanse me from my secret faults? So after confession and cleansing comes order and obedience, the offering of your day. Surrender your day to God. Show childlike need. Say, Papa, I can't do this alone. This day is laid out in front of me. It's just getting started. I don't think I can make it through this on my own. Can I put my hand in your hand and will you help me cross the street of life today? I want to demonstrate my dependence on you because I'm not sure I can do this. So let me surrender to you through order The order of my day and the obedience. You know, obedient hands and lips don't soon yield to sin. Obedient hands and lips don't quickly yield to sin. And when you give God the day and you give him your obedience first, he'll work with you in and through that to govern throughout your day. And finally, we come to family and friends where we're offering to God those who are the nearest to us and the dearest to us And uh, you're naming each one of them by name. You know, I'm a grandparent. Don't have any kids at home. But we had a slumber party the other night with a couple of grandkids. It was fun. Sleeping bags in the living room. (laughs) Pancakes and blueberries and throw a few chocolate chips in in the morning. In fact, we even had them for dinner the night before and had them for breakfast the next morning. And uh, you you get to have all the fun stuff over again. And moms, you know how this is. Dads, you go to pray at night. Hopefully you pray with your kids when you go to bed. The, the best part of the day with your kids right here. First 15 minutes and the last 15 minutes. So two sweetest spots of your instructional moment are those two periods of your day. And if you're missing them, you're missing out. If you're not there to wake them up when they wake up and they're crusty-eyed and, and get the first 15 minutes, you set the tenor of their day. How did a lot of kids get the tenor of their day said, Get up, I, I'm not telling you again! The fourth time I come in there, you're in big trouble. That's quite the tenor of a day. I, I like the simple ways of motivating. When they're teenagers, you got to help them a little, right? You know, just freeze a whole jar of marbles in the, put them in the freezer. You say, just announce five minutes marbles. You know, if you dump frozen marbles into a bed, they just run downhill to wherever the body is. They're inescapable. Used to do it with ice cubes, but that makes a mess. Marbles don't melt. But they can't go anywhere. 
that that marble doesn't chase them down. You just help them, motivate them. A little parental tip there. Now here's the last part of the day. The last 15 minutes is, okay, we're going to pray, and we're going to fold our little hands, or maybe they're bigger and they're kneeling, or however they do it, they're praying. We're laid out in the living room, the sleeping bags, we're going to pray. And Josiah, the grandson, he prays for everybody by knee. Right on through. And you know, about the time it turns to the trees and the squirrels and the bushes and whatever might be added on, you realize it's a stall tactic. But the fun part is, is when they're naming everybody they love. And just like children, they're just naming the people who are closest around them and are the most important in their life. They don't pray for the whole world unless it's a stall tactic. They're just praying for everybody around them. I'm thinking we should learn something from these little people. We should be praying for our family by name. And then, this is another thing I like about self-structured church and being in lighthouses together, is that we have family groups. I, I like to call everybody in a cell lighthouse family members. They're, they're like living together in a lighthouse. You don't fit a lot of people in there. It's a small family usually, not more than a dozen. And everybody helps the lighthouse work. But you can pray through that family too. And this occurred to me recently, and this is a goal for me and for us in this coming year, this, this 2009. I'm talking about having prayer first, ministering to the Lord. If everybody prayed for their family, and if, all, if I pray for all cell leaders, and all the cell leaders pray for everybody in their cells, that means everybody in the church is being prayed for. And if we do it every day, that means everybody in our congregation gets prayed for every day. You know what? That thought occurred to me, and I went, I want to go to a church where I know somebody prays for me every day. I'm never left out. Now, if you're not in a cell group, oops. You can do the math on that. But I'd like to build us into a church family where we know everybody's getting prayed for. And then once we've prayed through that circle, God will lay on our heart those who are outside of those small circles of friends and family and lighthouse, and we'll start to gather them into the family too. I think it would be an attractive offering. So he says, well, why should I get into one of those groups? Do you like being prayed for every day? Would you like somebody interceding on your behalf by name every day? Yeah, it sounds like a pretty good benefit to me. I'm in. Now, all of this has one large presumption, and that's that we're actually reading the book and using it as our guide. This is our devotional tool. This is where we learn the ways and heart and words of God. This is where he speaks to us, the living rhema of God that feeds us on a daily basis. We have to have that. And parents, if you're going to do devotions in your home, you're going to follow these simple steps and establish something that you do with your kids every day or your grandkids, as the case may be, where every time you have opportunity, then you must understand that the devotion time with your kids is not your devotion time. You know one of the traps of being a preacher is? Everything you hear from God becomes a message for somebody else. I repented yesterday. This is a regular problem. I said, God, how can I be more of a son? How can I be more intimate with you? I, it's, you know, it's just, it can't be as tight as it could be. How could it be better? And I heard this sentence come from his mouth, if you will, from his heart to mine. It was so direct. It was so, it was so him to me. And what did I do? I got up and started running away. I wasn't afraid. I just started moving. 
Because I was going to go write it down, and I was going to turn it into a message, and then you're going to hear it next week. It's a trap. And I, th- I, got, I literally got three feet from where I had prayed and heard. I got three feet away, about from there to here, and I went, oh, this is so stupid. Father, I'm sorry. Why don't I just stay here, three feet closer to you, and just talk some more? That's what it was about. That was my question. How can I be more intimate? It's not by running off and writing it down. You can't hardly wait to share it in a cell. can't hardly wait to tell the neighbor. It's for me. It's intimacy with him. And so when you as a family get together to do that simple family devotion, that's a training and equipping time for your children or your grandchildren that you're doing. That's not where you're fed. That's not where you got to get your devotions before you get to them. So what does that mean? You got to get up earlier than them. Slumber party at my house I told you about? The first one was awake at five. I thought, oh man, is this possible? What do I got to do? You know, I'm just responding to the sounds and I'm out and I can't understand a word they're saying. But you know, it's not pleasant, whatever it is. And say, and what? I'm a parent. You need a drink of water. Yeah, I do. We need a drink of water. So we make our way to the sink. We get a little water. We have a little drink. And I think it's five fifteen. I've been up too many days at five fifteen this week. I'm going back to bed. This was Saturday morning. I said, "Okay, come on, back in the sleeping bag." In they go, and I'm going back to bed. I am forcing myself to sleep. I'm sleeping in today. And man, did I. 8.40. you believe I almost slept till 9 o'clock? My grandkids were complaining that I slept half the day away. <laughs> Woke up, my head was like this big and fuzzy, and my eyes were all shut, and I thought, this isn't right. But if you're going to get up ahead of the kids and have devotions with the Lord, it's like Psalm 5, early in the morning, you'll hear my cry. He'd be like Jesus who got up a great while before day and slipped off by himself to be with the Father. And when you come back to that devotional moment with your children and with your family, your husband, your wife, however you do it, then you're going to actually have something to bring to the table because your life is full. You're going to be practicing Matthew 6.33 where he says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and then all these other things will get added to you. How do you seek first? You've got to go early. You've got to get at it. Psalm 57, verses 7 and 8 says, I'm going to awaken the dawn. I think there must be an age bracket in here somewhere where where you will finally reach that. That you wake up before the sun. How many of you are waking up before the sun? Yeah, not the young hands. You know, they're strapping in for a little while yet. And then you should. You need your rest. I believe it. But my eyes are open all the time now, like too early. I get up at 2. I figure it's pre-flight. Go back to bed, back up again at 4. Crazy. Where do we leave off up here? The websites? Do we have websites? Great. You might want to jot these down or if you're interested in needing, if you need some tools for how to do family devotions, I'm going to recommend the second one to you, fullarmor.org. FullArmor.org is Jim and Linda Shuck. You know them they, right here among us. Jim Shuck developed this ministry, and it is a daily devotional tool 
that you can do with your family. It takes 10 minutes a day, four days a week. And check this out. Email it right into your inbox. You'll get a parent guide. You'll get the outline. You'll have age-appropriate scriptures for memorization for the different age groups in your family. You, have, you know, you, for the little tiny one, you get like John eleven thirty-five. Jesus wept. You know, and for the high schoolers in your group, you get like a paragraph of scriptures to memorize. And so it's age-appropriate. It's all on the same subject, and you get it. It's thirty-six weeks, months. Uh, it's three years long. I'm getting this right. 36 months. Long. Three years of daily devotions. And they don't repeat. Is that amazing? Man, you could almost raise your kids for three years just using that one tool. And I recommend it to you. It's called Our Time Together. All you got to do is go to the website, sign up, give me your email, and that stuff will start jumping into your email box every day. And if you're a single... You could still do it. Just don't tell anybody that you're sneaking in on the family devotions. Great material. Great stories. Pastor Fred Snyder writes an opening story that drives the point home. You can share it with your kids. You can just read it and enjoy it. I get it every day in my inbox. And I can tell you that right now, Pastor Bill Weaver at the Assembly of God Church in town, Summit Christian Fellowship, is preaching our time together every week for three years. He's just taking it to his whole church and leading his whole church into doing that devotion inside their homes. Is that cool? That's cool. They have CDs also. Yeah, right, exactly. I should have brought it down. I've got to set upstairs. You can buy the full armor uh, on the website. Probably you can get the, all the CDs of all the lessons. You can just buy them outright and have them. You can bring them up on your own computer and use all the stuff. So you don't have to wait for it to come in your inbox if you want to do more. What's our objective today, really? We've done a, a number of things, talked about a number of, from different angles. But the objective is really this. We want to raise the value of training young people. We want to honor moms because you're the front line. Generally, you're the ones that are doing it. You're the ones that have the control of the young people most of the time and have the opportunity to speak into them most of the time. I appreciate the dads that are in the nursery this morning because they're telling me that they're involved too. And you need the tools to do it. You need some help. You need some encouragement. You need some, we need, for those of you who say, well, I'd like to work with young people a little more, but I don't have any at my house. Hey, you could be next door with Kids Zone. All you got to do is get a hold of Leah Musser and say, hey, how about a Sunday? How about a Saturday night Kids Zone slot? How about I become one of the workers here in the church that speaks into our young people's lives? Uh, you could work with Celebration Youth, the high school group. You could start a cell with a bunch of young people. That would be exciting. Think of all the food you could eat. You know, that's all you have to have is free food. And you can get a bunch of kids. It's like bait. You can also get a bunch of pastors. Boy, the pastor jokes just lined up in my head. About three or four of them right there. You hear the one about the, I got to do one. The barber decided he was going to give away a free haircut every morning. The first person to come in the day got a free haircut. He didn't tell anybody. He just decided. So the first morning, the, the uh, florist showed up to get a haircut. After he cut his hair, he said, no charge. He said, really? Why? So I just decided. First person every day gets a free haircut. He goes, really? That's really that's nice of you. Thank you very much. The next morning when the barber showed up at his, at his door, there was a dozen roses on the doorstep. That's cool. 
The guy in the next the next morning get a haircut was uh, I think it was like the milkman. He cut his hair and said, "No charge." I said, really? Why? He just decided. Next morning there was a gallon of milk on the doorstep. That morning a pastor came in, got his haircut. He's no charge, pastor. Really? Wow. Why? I just decided. The next morning when he got to work, there were a dozen other pastors on the doorstep. <laughs> It fits in there somewhere. <laughs> just want to say thank you to moms for the consistency that you develop in your devotional life with your kids. If you need help, please ask. You, uh, if there's something we can do for you to encourage you, I know it's hard for you to ask. Uh, I asked some parents last night, I said, well, how come I never get your kids for a slumber party? I have to be careful. I have to invite Peggy in on this deal, too. Uh, but we could grandparent a few others. We could do some extra slumber parties with your kids. And uh, <laughs> Kay's dreaming over there. <laughs> Is he serious about that? Yeah, we have handcuffs and everything. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Just trying to inspire consistent training of our kids. There's a difference between teaching and training, too, you know. Teaching is giving information. Training is walking along and helping them to do it. You can teach somebody how to fly a $30 million airplane, but you don't just put them in it and say, you know, go ahead and take off, right? It's a disaster waiting to happen. So you put them in the back seat and you fly the plane for them. You let them hold the controls a little bit and you let them try it out until they get a feel for it. But you train it. You teach them the knowledge, but then you equip and train and shape the child so that they can actually function in what the equipping is about. Here's some things we can do. What could you do? Work with kids and the youth here at the church. Uh, you can support kids that are on the mission field. You can support kids, young people. Pray for them. Send them bucks. Send them encouragement. Email them. Facebook them. Text them. Whatever it is you do, you could do with a young person. I think of Brian Taylor. He just connected with me on Facebook the other day and said, Hey, I got Skype. And he's in Texas for a year by himself. Uh, out there going through the Honor Academy with uh, Teen Mania. I thought, we need to encourage the guy. He said, it was a tough day at the office for him, and so why not encourage him? It doesn't take much, but we can, we can uh, be a church that models Christianity to young people. Um, keep in mind that every time we're up against somebody, we have an opportunity to be a truth teller, a truth giver, a truth example, especially to young people. But the, the bottom line is the Bible requires us that we equip our young people. And on a Mother's Day, I would congratulate the moms for doing what you do. Okay? Had enough? Ready for Mother's Day lunch? Father, I pray your grace once again upon all the moms here this morning, those that are listening uh, via online or CD. Pray that your encouragement would enfold them today. That the angel of the Lord would surround them. Again, carry them along in your hand. Bless them today in a big way. Lord, and would you help us as a congregation to become one that is mindful of our young people. Give us an excitement about pressing into them the life of Jesus. Help us to see where our responsibility lies and then give us the courage to respond to that responsibility. Lord, we pray for this community. There are kids everywhere. Latch keys and 
They're loose. They're running all over the place. And just like we used to, Lord. But somebody cared about us. And I thank you for that. That you sent help from the sanctuary for us. That we might hear of Jesus and the good news of salvation through his work on the cross. Give us the same kinds of inspiration and impetus to be about the kingdom business as it relates to the young people in this community. Pray for revival to break out among them, that you'll give courage to those who call upon your name, Lord, those who are even now being the salt and light inside the school systems. Lord, that you will give them stamina to stand for what is right, that you'll give them ears to hear truth and lie and be able to tell them apart. Wisdom from on high would be their portion. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.